You know what I used to struggle with? Eating a diet that's nutrient-dense enough for me to get all of my dietary needs met through what I eat alone. I am no longer a passenger on that struggle bus because one tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in my diet, increase my energy and focus, aid with digestion, and supports a healthy immune system, all without the need to take multiple products or pills, because baby, I can't do it. And it's lifestyle friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, it just fits. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system during these times, and they're offering my audience a free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase, if you visit my link today. So you'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. <laughs> to redeem your offer, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash bewellsis. Again, to redeem your offer, of one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs, visit athleticgreens.com slash be well sis. Too often, Black women are a mere afterthought in conversations around wellness, but not in this space. On this podcast, the dialogue is always centered around women like you. Welcome to the podcast, but more importantly, welcome to the tribe. Be well, sis. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Be Well Sis podcast. I am your host, Dr. Cassandra Dunbar. Sis, how has life been treating you? But more importantly, how have you been treating yourself? Girl, I, you know, I'm going to be 100% transparent with you. Uh, things have not been great on this side. Um, honestly, it's not anything that's going on in my life personally, thank God, um, it is just what's happening in the world that is just really creeping into my mental. And if you don't live in the U.S., um, maybe you have, have seen the, the news of what's happening over here. Um, but child, it's a mess. It is a whole damn mess. People have lost their fucking minds. Um, maybe they never had them to begin with, but gun control is really a huge problem here. Um, the lack thereof and couple that with racism and just paranoia and just people just lacking the social skills and just all types of mess. It's just a recipe for disaster. And there have been three incidents this week of young people either losing their lives or coming close to losing their lives from gun violence, um, for really stupid situations like things that should not have put their lives in danger um anyway I don't want to get too far into it because it's just depressing um so that is why I am very late on this episode and the yeah I I am struggling (laughs) I am really struggling I want to the goal is to to produce an episode every single week, but the reality is that firstly, I am solo. I don't have a team. It is just me who's doing this, and on top of that, um, not only do I not have a team, but I also have a job. I have children, and um, that leaves me with very little time to actually produce the show. Um, 
And I, and I usually, and I've been trying to get it done. Like this year I said I was going to be really, really consistent and put out an episode every week, but it is just hard. And I know how hard it would be, but dang, like if anything changes up in my schedule at all, it just messes everything up. For example, the week before last, the boys were on spring break, so they were home with me and I had to make sure that I entertained at some point in in some ways, in some capacity. So that took in that, you know, that dug into the time that I would typically use to do editing and writing, scripting, all of those things. It just took into the time of the podcast. So with that being said, I do apologize for the the delay and the absence of an episode, um, but I am working really, really hard to hopefully one day, not hopefully one day, to get to a level where I am not a solo entrepreneur, that I am not the only one working in this space, but it is me and a team. With that said, if you are a videographer or video editor, excuse me, if you are a social media maven, if you are a podcast editor, or if you are just really passionate about the wellness and um, wellness of black women and you are interested in working with me, how about you send me an email? Send an email to hello, H-E-L-L-O, at thebewellsis.com and put in the, the subject bar that you are interested in working together. So tell me what it is that you are really good at or that you're really passionate at, and then we will schedule a call to see if you are a fit and we can work together. So again, this is just on the fly. I didn't even think about this, but hey, I'm putting it out there. So email hello, H-E-L-L-O, at thebewellsis.com. In the subject line, put in looking for work or looking to collaborate. Any of those things works. Um, and then we will connect because this cannot be. <laughs> I really love the podcast. This is this has been my passion project. But when I feel like I'm overloaded with too many things and assignments and responsibilities, this becomes more of a burden and less of a joy. And I'm really, I really want to stick around and I really want to have this be a really great listening experience for you guys. And I just need help. I just need to be vulnerable and honest and open and transparent. Your girl needs help. I cannot do it all alone. I thought I could. (laughs) Actually, I knew I couldn't, but I I thought, I don't know. I thought maybe if I like worked hard, I I could do it. But dang, there's only so many hours in the day and your girl needs to figure out how to sleep at some point too. So yes, um, aside from that, um, those two major things I am, I've been doing a lot of thinking and talking to my therapist about what it looks like to, to live life differently. And what that means is I was thinking about the pan, the very beginning of the pandemic. And one thing that I really enjoyed is that it really caused us all to like hit a reset button And it really caused me to really look into how I spend my day today and how I felt that the the pace that I was going at at the pre-pandemic life, I was unsustainable and I did not want to go back there. And I didn't think any of us would go back there. I thought that the pandemic 
was like a reset for us and that we would live life a little bit differently. And I have found that I have just about did a full circle and have gone right back to, to start a point A, which is where I didn't want to be, which is how busy and packed and hectic life was pre-pandemic. So I have been reimagining what 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 type of life do I want to live? Do I want to be constantly on the go? No. Um, what does success look like? And I've talked about this in previous episodes before that we all should really say and spend some time really reassessing what does success mean and what does it look like for us and not and not necessarily judge our quote success or failure by what we've been told that it looks like. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. And I one of the things that I've been really, really trying to conceptualize for myself is life outside of the U.S., I have been born and raised here, even though I spent time outside of the U.S. because A, my parents are from the Caribbean, so I spent a lot of time going back and forth as a child. But also in my adulthood, I spent time in medical school in the Caribbean. So I spent time living alone as an adult in the Caribbean. And I felt like I've always seen myself living somewhere else, so outside of this country. But something about having children makes it so much scarier, the thought of getting up and leaving. But what's wild is something about having children makes living in this space so fucking scary. And it's like, I don't think it's a paranoia. I don't think it's my anxiety. I think the things that are really on my mind are things that a lot of us are talking about and a lot of us are feeling. Because at one point I was trying to downplay it like, girl, you're doing too much. You're thinking too hard about this. But really, I'm not. I don't feel settled anywhere. Not in my home, not at the grocery store, not at church, not sending my kids to school, um, not walking in my neighborhood. God forbid I got to bust a Yui in somebody's um, driveway. Like just, it doesn't feel safe here. It doesn't feel settled here. And I just, and I know there's no place on this planet that is perfect. I get that. I just want a place where there is um, some peace, at least from the threat of constant violence. So that brings us to today's episode. And it is actually really timely. I spoke to her um, a week before so not even for a week, a few days before the incidents that happened throughout the week. If you are not sure what I'm talking about, I will link, I've left links below down in the show notes so you can get caught up with the news, but I'm sure you guys know the place is a mess. Um, but anyway, so I spoke to um, our guest today a few days before the incidents and I was already struggling with, with these thoughts and just what happened you know, this past week has really accelerated my feelings and my desires to get out of Dodge. Um, so with that, I had a beautiful conversation and it was like, it was like soul medicine. It was just so touching and thought provoking. And I just always feel so blessed getting, coming away from my conversation with the women that I speak to here. It's always like medicine and always just so timely. If nothing else, this podcast has like saved my life in so many ways. And that includes the conversation that I had with 
Janada. Ooh, why am I getting choked up? Janada Petrus Nasa is an author. She's a filmmaker, a performance artist, and a pleasure activist. And we spent time talking about using our creativity to reimagine the possibilities of what life can look like, especially for black and brown folk, right? Her most recent book is called, Can We Please Give the Police Department to the Grandmothers? That is based on her viral poem after the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri back in 2014. And she inspires the readers to imagine a radically positive future where police aren't in charge of public safety and community well-being. So in speaking to her, I asked her, what does abolition mean in today's context, right? And I've told you guys before, I am not a scholar in that sense. I know about the body and that's about it. <laughs> so when I hear these words, I feel like I have an idea of what they mean, um, but I really want, but I always want to get clarity as to what these things really mean. And exploring that answer, she asks, in what she asks herself, what ways have I been programmed to police myself and to police others? And she talks about, you know, the way she polices her body and the way she polices her her own femhood, um, all of those things. And it was just questions that I had to ask myself um, the same. In what ways has my mind been colonized that I need to unlearn? Um but anyway, the conversation is really great. She has a beautiful spirit, beautiful personality, and she's just super dope. Like just really, really bright and just makes things really clear for those of us who are not <laughs> who are not um, activists and writers and just yes. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so, so much for joining. I am so, so glad you're here. Be well, sis. So I am super excited to be talking to Janata today. Um, how are you? I'm doing really well. I'm so excited to be on your podcast, Cassandra. Thank you. Thank you. I'm honored that you are here. Um, you are a woman of so many titles, so many um, things. You are a, a multi-passionate and you're an author, you're a playwright, you are a pleasure activist, and I just want to dive into all of it. Um, before we do, there's one thing that we do share in common is that we are both of Caribbean descent. Oh, yay. Yes, yes. Caribbean girls unite. Um, so my question is, as somebody who is queer, as somebody who is um, a pleasure activist, how did your Caribbean background shape your identity and coming into your own personhood? Mm. Yeah, I feel like it's that's an interesting question to think about because I think so much of Caribbean culture is a centering of pleasure, is a defaulting to pleasure. Um, um, my mother's from Trinidad um, and my father's from St. Croix. Um, and I was raised in the Midwest, um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, but I feel like when I think of my aunties, um, like on my mom's side of the family, like they were just always cracking jokes, you know, no matter what, you know, they were going through um, or holding or navigating, like even trauma, and things that were tragic were told for comic relief in a certain kind of way. Um, I think, uh, you know, sort of having capacity to allow the relief of survival to, you know, you know, like when you're like running from something that's like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> and then you're just kind of like, like I feel like this cat really is wanting to 
like upstage me today. Um, <laughs> never does that. She's she's a sweet cat. Um, anyway, um, and I definitely feel you know just the pleasure of the elements. Like when I think of the islands in the Caribbean, you know, so much of it is thinking about the ocean waves and the sensory feel of them and the sound of them and the soothing of them. Um, I think of the lush greenness, the fruit, the ability to like, you know, grab something alive to eat year round. Um, to me, like there's pleasure in that there's activism in being able to, you know, nourish yourself off the land in the ways that I think people in the Caribbean, um, you know, have access to for sure. And definitely how my family grew up and, you know, continues to live. So I um, also my queerness, you know, I think so much of Caribbean identity and Caribbean culture has been shaped by Caribbean queerness, you know, even though there's a often this stigma because, you know, like a lot of countries and regions that have been colonized, you know, um, by Europe and by the religiosity um, of oppression or the oppression of religiosity, like a lot of um, what was attacked first was gender diverge from these norms and you know queerness and powerful feminist women like I was actually reading yesterday um about some of these maroon uh queen mothers of Jamaica and St. Croix in particular um healers you know which women will be a woman all that um who were the ones who led the resistance um so yeah so I feel for me, um, especially being a kid of the diaspora and always feeling very connected to the Caribbean, but also very distanced because I was raised here. Um, I think part of being an artist is part of that reclamation, both of the queerness within Caribbean culture and also the Caribbeanness within my blackness, you know? So yeah. yeah. Are you born in the islands or were you um, born in the States? No, I was born in the States. So I was born in New Jersey. Um, my parents are Haitian. Um, which is why I asked that question. And and I feel like um what you just said, that last piece, I definitely resonate with, you know, um, being a child of the diaspora. So I was born here. It's like uh, being part of two cultures, two worlds that are similar, but distinct in a way. Yeah, for sure. Um, So my, for the podcast and also just for my life, I've just been trying to imagine a new future. So the podcast really, we talk a lot about wellness and how to you know unlearn some things that we've been taught about ourselves right and just really to find out who we are for ourselves what makes us happy what brings us joy what makes us whole um and one thing that i have been fighting with i'm not sure that's the right word but i feel that there's so much no matter how much work i do on myself um, the world that we live in or the country that we currently live in, the strife, it like undoes all the things that I do constantly. So I'm trying to open up my mind and also challenging um, the listeners to also expand themselves and their view of what life could look like. Um, so I'm coming to you as a, a person who is great at reimagining a new world and reimagining how we do things. Um, have you always been imaginative or is this something that you've had to kind of cultivate in a way? 
I think both end actually. Like I think I've always been imaginative. I've always been daydreamy. I've always been creative, you know, like um, in a way that I think I didn't understand where that would be a valuable expression of myself. Like I also felt very much like a, that was a part of myself I had to repress, had to hide, had to deny. Um, and so I think, you know, I think this is the case with a lot of artists, with a lot of Black folks, with a lot of queer folks, like so much of our natural flow and expression is either criminalized or undermined or extracted from in our society or all of those things. Um, so, you know, you repress or hide that part of yourself to survive. So I do think, you know, yes, it's natural. And then the cultivation really did come in um, my late 20s, um, where I sort of was in a moment, Saturn return for the astrology people in the room, um, where I was like, okay, either I, I feel like there's something, there's parts of me that I've repressed and that it's choking me and suffocating me that I'm holding these things back. And mainly there were the fact that I was an artist and wanted to be that with all my might. And the other was my queerness. And even addition to queerness, like my like hoishness, you know, like I think <laughs> there's an aspect of black femme sexuality that often um, forces us to feel like, oh, you know, you gotta be a good girl, you gotta be, you know, a good woman, you gotta be, or all of these sort of, um, there's a particular black patriarchy um, that happens, I think, to black femme bodies, you know, because we're dealing with the ways that blackness is subjected to judgment and criminalization and hatred and femhood is, and the intersections of those things, you know, misogynoir, you know, um, really feels acute and really feels like in order to prove our worth, we need to somehow deny any of these stigmas. And I feel like part of this reclamation, even in talking around my Caribbean identity um, and how that lives in my Black American identity, because I also feel Black American and I also feel Black Caribbean, um, is this idea that like, oh yeah, I'm a person that wants, I'm a person that desires, I'm a person that is curious about things and wants to feel how those things feel like. Um, I think so at that time in my life, you know, like on my late 20s, I really started to kind of deal with the pressure of holding all of myself back from myself. Um, so yeah, I think that um, I'm glad that I did cultivate that within myself. And I think it's a part of my work too, where in one way or another, it's like some kind of reclamation, you know? So whether it's, um, you know, my first book really talking about like black, queer, young sexuality and desire and feelings and all of that, um, or my new book where it's like, okay, well, so much of what care looks like today comes from, you know, the space of, you know, black woman care often forced labor, forced positioning of care, but also our natural capacity and a lot of, you know, women's natural capacity um, to kind of see and intuit and empathize. Um, and I think, you know, with the, you know, my, can we please give, give the police department to the grandmothers, which is my kid's book, a lot of it is how do we use these reflections and embodiments of healing and magic um, as our goalposts for how we sort of heal our society, 
versus continuing to invest in a police state that was established at the, you know, you know, beginning and, you know, uh, time frame of slavery, uh, in removal, um, you know, the absolute non-existence of women's rights, um, that that is the ethos and culture that the police state was created in. And no matter how people try to rebrand it, it's sort of like, you know, it gonna be what it gonna be. It's kind of like neighborhood, and they start giving it new names and it's like, it's still that same neighborhood or y'all call it avocado toast now, but you know, us in the islands was bred in, you know, Zapoca or whatever. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, anyhow. So I guess that's definitely, you know, just naming that, like we're always naturally who we are, but so much of our society forces us to assimilate and then we have to fight to claim ourselves again. Bewilsis is very much an advocate for therapy, and I believe that you don't have to be in crisis in order to seek help and get support. Life is complicated. We all wear many hats, and sometimes it can be overwhelming. Starting therapy years ago has been pivotal in helping me be a better mother, daughter, and partner. It's truly been a game changer in how I view myself and the world around me. So Bewilsis is proud to be sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy platform whose mission is to make professional therapy accessible, affordable, and convenient, so anyone who struggles with life's challenges can get help anywhere and anytime. Join the 3 million-plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash BeWellSys. That's BetterHelp.com slash BeWellSys. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so beautifully put um one thing that i was thinking about is how even if we reclaim who we are there's also this struggle to for it not to be completely extracted from us you know like our creativity like we're always fighting the system that is capitalism as well as racism as well as sexism right um so my question for you is how do you, as a creative being, um, still create, still find pleasure, still, um, we still have to fend for ourselves, like, so take care of yourself without being exploited and being sucked into the system. And I'm not sure if that's like a, too vague of a question. No, I think it's a question I ask myself, actually, like, how do I be who I am creatively, how do I actually focus on the ritual and the kind of de devotion work that I think creativity sort of is fun. That's what I like about it. To me, it feels like ritual. It feels like a spiritual practice. Um, it feels like exciting conversations with my ancestors and other spirits. And it feels, um, as though I'm being channeled through. Mm -hmm. When I think of art or I experience art, it really, when I'm in it, it's this otherworldly experience. And we live in a very, you know, sort of world where we do have to provide for ourselves in these very tangible, mm -hmm. capitalistic ways that at times, and I think inherently is at odds with a spiritual artistic practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, social media is a thing that I often am like, ugh. Like there's times where I like 
really am. Oh, I'm having fun on this thing. Yeah, look at me. Let's type slides. And then there's other times where I'm like, this evil, complicated, mind scrambling. Like I just went to Ross Gay. Um, I don't know if you know Ross Gay, who's, you know, this really awesome writer. Um, and they're, you know, he's like a complete Luddite, essentially. Like, you know, he's all about nature, all about disconnecting. I forget the elaborate uh, name he has for cell phones, but something like mind guzzling, soul scrambling type, you know, like super <laughs> adamantly against cell phones, which there's a part of me that's very much that way. And I also feel so pulled to participate in, you know, what is an inherently very capitalistic, you know, brand, you know, essentializing your 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 life, your existence to sort of this very singular, you know, medium that was often contorted um, and contorting to me, you know. Um, so I think what I'm interested in as a recently, like actually before I got on this podcast with you, I was walking with my wife and really thinking about how do I plan and prepare to live in rhythms that feel conducive to being an artist, that feel conducive to my health and my well-being and my spiritual commitments, because it's so easy to be consumed in your phone for way too much time, yeah. to feel kind of this like low-level fog of brain energy, like, oh, I can't really delve deep into books. I can't really delve deep into writing sometimes. Um, so I feel what I've really been interested in is like, how do I protect and cultivate a space so that I could live, you know, completely in um, this realm of artistic, um, spiritual delving and deepening that I think is where my richest, most meaningful healing work comes from. Um, while also having to participate or feel like I have to participate on some level with, you know, popping on social media. Sometimes it's great. Like, you know, I posted about my family doing a cat birthday party yesterday, you know, like <laughs> same cat that's walking across this, you know, platform. So she's feeling herself clearly because she was celebrated and Sprite was <laughs> lifting the hair by nine-year-olds and her feline um, you know, and it was so cute. And I was like, oh, I want to share that. And um, I'm promoting a book right now, so I'm sharing that. Um, but it also feels like then my my focus becomes more phone focused. And I feel like that has felt like a cutoff for my creativity that I've often been trying to figure out like, okay, why do I feel so attached to this, even though I don't believe in it or, you know, agree with the way that it impacts me and others? And there's times I'm looking at it and I'm laughing and I love the things I'm learning on it. Um, so I guess to answer your question is that I'm questioning that exact thing. It's like, how do I, and you know, you asked about the capitalism of it all. And I think for me, um, that's what where I go to where the capitalism feels to like lay into my life is when on the daily, I feel like I participate in some of these things that, um, maybe don't feel good to me or maybe feel like like so what you know ross was talking about was you know just everybody's looking in their phone instead of looking outside and seeing what a squirrel is doing that might actually help cultivate something about your writing or your brain or whatever in a certain kind of way and i don't know and it doesn't have to be absolute either way um but it is a thing that i think in this age of when so much of art is actually people commodifying their creativity on social media, right? Yeah. 
or it's like, oh, hey, like there's things that it's so brilliant that like years ago, people would have to like work hard to get access to be shown on a show and maybe never, ever be, you know, off hands. But now people can do it for themselves. But then the work is like, well, how do I commodify it? And still the, the powers that be are able to be like, oh, hey, we have a TikTok house and all these white kids are going to make bank while all the black kids cultivate the creativity. Yep. So, yeah, I feel like it, these are just very deep and in real time questions, you know, I think be asking themselves. Because even me, I'm like, all of this writing, like, I'm not going to put a whole bunch of writing all the time on social media because I'm like, I need to actually put that writing in my book. But then I don't be putting it in my book all the time. Like, sometimes I'm like, girl, you be writing even in your book. So, like, <laughs> so anyways, I feel like, I don't, I'm, I'm, these are just really deep questions, yeah. questions of their own, I guess. Yeah, I, I get it. And I think, you know, what you are describing too is cycles. I think it's okay as, um, as people just to have cycles. Sometimes like we're into something, sometimes we're not and just embrace both part of those. Don't let either consume us. Right. Um, I want to switch, um, gears a little bit and talk about, can we please give the police department to the grandmothers and how we talk about abolition and, um, that with our children. So before we even go there, what is abolition? Like what is abolitionism? What does that really mean in, in today's world? Yeah. I mean, I think historically, you know, when we talk about abolition, we've talked about the abolition of slavery um, which in a lot of ways, you know, I think we're still trying to abolish slavery, you know, so much like, you know, even talking about the police state, there's so much of the institutions and systems that are in place in our society that were created out of a slave society. And just because slavery ended, inherently these institutions didn't change, you know, and the way power lives. So when I think about abolition and definitely within the context of the prison industrial complex. And I'm very clear around like speaking to it as a whole ornate system. You know, the the police industrial complex connected to the prison industrial complex and the corporate, you know, bodied industrial complex. Um, you know, all of these are inner working systems that really keep a system of oppression over most people and privileges certain groups in a variety of ways. And so when I think about abolition, um, and certainly in the, you know, conversations I've been having in Minneapolis since George Floyd was murdered specifically, um, has been more so interested definitely in removing systems of oppression, but also in giving resource and energy and imagination and creativity to what it is we want to dream and make into existence, you know? And I think... Um, for me, so much of my resistance and liberatory work over the years has been in what I'm fighting to end and resist. And it really was around George Floyd that I started thinking about what ways am I policing myself? You know, what ways have I been programmed to police myself, police others, punish myself, punish others? And us as Minneapolis residents and Minneapolis activists and abolitionists, um, we're confronted that the system that we're trying to destroy or, you know, you know, sunset, um, is a system all of us have been raised deeply in. So how do I actually live in a 
practice of abolition for myself. I called it um, erotics of abolition, actually, you know, and started writing around how am I living in a relationship with myself that isn't judging and punishing and policing my existence. Because in order for me to actually embody it and create it for other people, I need to live it on a cellular level. So seeing that as like a tandem practice and how I create abolition in the world is abolition in myself because I police myself, police my body, um, my pleasure, um, police my looks, my weight, you know, all of things that, you know, I have absorbed. And um, so anyways, like that's for me, like abolition to me, it's like, I, I'm very curious about, yes, you know, we definitely are working and I'm working to abolish all of these systems, but these systems have already colonized me, you know? Yeah. And and I think that's the um, joy of like this book and kind of exploring it as kind of like this imaginal dream space that's intergenerational inherently because it's a kid's book talking about grandmothers, you know? So I think I'm living in, the ways that elders and children both live in the future and in the ancestor realm. Mm -hmm. And how do we um, use that as a mechanism of abolition? You know, because children know freedom inherently in their body and they can future it for us. And elders and, you know, know of times when our ancestors lived in spaces of freedom and embody it and found freedom within oppression. Um, so that is, you, you know, my defining and constant defining of what abolition can be like. Cause I think, you know, with a lot of things like, oh, you know, you woke or you this or whatever, like the word can then sort of lose meaning because people think they know what it means. Yep. Or, or even the world, like, you know, let alone, how are we defining these things for ourselves? So, yep. yeah. Oh, I, I think that's just so beautiful. You're, you're brilliant. Just, um, I did not think to think about how I, have you know um how, how i am oppressing myself because i have been colonized and i think um this book is super important um as a place for parents who don't know how to talk about these things and reimagining the future and all of that can talk to to their children um i have two little ones myself and i'm constantly trying to figure out what is too much to to talk about um, what is not enough? Like, what am I being negligent and not addressing? And I think this is a beautiful starting place um, to open up the doors for those conversations. Because especially as parents of Black and Brown children, we we need to 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 dive in to to these um, conversations really, really early. Yeah, the conversations the kids are, are. I mean, think about us. Like, I was aware of race at a very young age. I was aware of being racialized. I was aware of being um, in a hierarchy of existence. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, black folks are actually really good at in general talking to our kids about race, you know, and I think so much of what we've had to absorb is like very real terror and fear about how to protect ourselves and be aware of ourselves as racialized black people. And I think like what I'm interested in cultivating and I've been actually, you know, in this generation, I'm a mother too, of like, how do I not put the burden of our society's effed upness while informing them of the reality of it, you know? Art. Yep. And I, yeah. So I think that's the beauty of art, you know, the beauty of poetry 
is that, um, and imagination and creativity is that um, we can give them the tools to validate that they are actually architects of the existence and we are their co-architects. Like I'm here to back up what y'all gonna figure out because what we've when and what we've, um, you know, inherited has been extremely toxic and intends to maintain that toxicity, you know, um, because it works for the those who are in power. But I think we hold so much power, young people, the collective, the elders, all of the people, the masses hold so much power and how do we notify young people of the power they're connected to as they have to navigate these very toxic realities? Because the re I was just telling my brother this yesterday, talking specifically about white children actually, and about how important it is for white people to actually talk to their kids about whiteness because racist white people <laughs> are definitely figuring out how to recruit, you know, yep. white minds into that kind of thinking and that's that kind of bigotry. So these so-called woke white folks and people who want to be liberal, they can't just be having these conversations of like, oh, everybody is the same and we don't see color. It's like, no, right. color, I want, you know, mm -hmm. and thinking about how then the burden tends to rely on black folks and folks of color because our children have to know this stuff, have to be clocking this stuff. Mm -hmm. And kids get to like sit out yep. until they want to date a person of color or they want to like, you know, somehow be of help. And it's like, I was thinking of, um, Sorry, get tangential. So if you're like, girl, ring it up. No, you could. <laughs> but I was talking um, oh, about this artist, Ken Gonzalez Day, who um, is a photographer who is capturing um, the history of Mexican-American lynching that used to happen in California um, at the turn of the last century, right? And we often know about, you know, Black lynching, but not about all of the other groups that were lynched. And, you know, percentage-wise, Black people were lynched way more than other groups, but other groups were being lynched, including Mexican-Americans and Asian-Americans and Jewish folks and whatnot. So anyways, what his work would do was he would take an image from a lynching and remove the lynched body. So instead of looking at the spectacle of violence on a Black or brown body, you're actually looking at the spectacle of white violence that is really the problem, right? That part, yes. And there's a way that, you know, because people are getting to see the trauma and the drama and the violence on us, we are the focus and white folks invisibilize behind that, right? So part, you know, these conversations that I'm having is like, how do we A, give black folks and young black people the space to dream and imagine and heal for themselves and on behalf of us and our ancestral generations because we just carry the trauma through the trauma don't dissipate yeah. with earth it's like no we just you know have to carry it through absorb it through like betroth it through and white folks betroth the privilege and the lack of you know association with the violence that they either perpetrate and or benefit from yeah. uh, so yeah, so I think that's, you know, kind of like to answer this question about how do we talk to our kids? It's like, how do we give them permission that this isn't, y'all need to focus on healing and joy and imagination. And I feel like there's so many wonderful, you know, thinkers and creators like, you know, nap ministry and other people are like, yeah, like, no, we need to rest. We need to catch up on our spirit and whatnot. Um, 
And I think also giving white people the invitation and the burden of figuring their stuff out because, you know, yep. when we move ourselves out of the equation, what's there is their white violence and their white trauma and drama and chaos that really is, is some like, I mean, don't get me tangential because I'm already there, but you know, <laughs> what, I really, what this society needs, it's like, yeah, we need like a million psychiatrists and psychotherapists and cultural healers and astrologers and tarot readers. And, you know, I was just saying this recently because there's just such, uh, and, you know, pastors and folks who are actually healer pastors, not, you know, and I don't know, I don't need to put that qualification. Um, but I, I, you. <laughs> yeah, thing. it's like, you know, p absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm -hmm. And you times people in those positions of power, you know, aren't necessarily leaning into healing. And so anyways, just thinking of all of these, you know, uh, mass shootings, all of these sorts of um, kind of trying to retract access to information and stuff like that. A lot of that is, you know, examples of how mentally destroyed and spiritually destroyed so many people are as a baseline in our society. Yes. Uh, and y'all want to give these people more access to guns and more access to, you know, no work and no resources and I don't know, and no books, more guns, less books. Like that's what we do in. Right. And right. Right. <laughs> and and this essentially brings us back to what I was saying earlier. Like, you know, all the work that an individual can do can only be so much if the society at large is sick. You know, um, uh, so there's there's always going to be work to be done, but I'm so grateful for people like you who use your art, your creativity, your imagination to inspire others to do the same. And then also with this book to allow us to um, give, pass that on to the generations that's coming behind us um, to, to dream bigger and brighter than we did. Um, so hopefully the power can come back to the masses where it belongs and things can change for, for the better. Um, I'm so happy that I got a chance to talk to you. You are just brilliant. I can listen to you talk forever and ever and ever. Um, so thank you for your time. I appreciate you so, so much. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me on your show. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Be Well Sis podcast. For more information on anything discussed in this episode, please see the show notes and or visit www.bewellsispodcast.com. Oh, and don't forget to leave a five-star rating on Apple. Until next time, be well, sis.